Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Hebrews, and we'll begin to read from chapter 11, beginning at uh, verse 32, and we'll uh, we'll continue down through verse 11 of chapter 12. And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? If you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So far from this reading of Scripture. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in Isaiah 53, our Lord Jesus Christ uh, was a man of sorrows. In fact, there is no sorrow like his sorrow as the sin-bearer who suffered the weight of our sins under the heavy hand of God. And yet the same word of God that testifies to his sorrow also says that he was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. 
Our Lord Jesus was filled with the Spirit uh, beyond measure. And the fruit of the Spirit abounded in him, love. And the second uh, fruit of the Spirit is joy and then peace. Our Lord Jesus suffered far beyond anything that we can imagine or will ever experience as Christians. Uh, but we must also say that he did not suffer from the kind of, of joy killers that so often disturb our happiness. He never suffered from the, the gnawing, uh, nagging of a guilty conscience, being himself perfectly righteous and obedience. And, uh, he did not suffer being driven by restless and unruly passions, uh, cause of so much of our trouble and misery as we yet wrestle with the power of sin in our lives. He never suffered from the breakdown of relationships that uh, was his own fault, as we do. Or he never suffered that distance and sense of alienation from God as a result of worldly cares that occupied his mind and heart. In the depths of his suffering and in the steady and flowing stream of his joy, he is perfect. He is a perfect Savior in his suffering, and he's a perfect Savior in his joy. Jesus experienced joy even during the state of his humiliation. But more importantly for our text, uh, he lived and he suffered and he endured in expectation, in anticipation of joy to come. Jesus saves uh, through the dynamic of his joy. Now the word dynamic, it... Uh, it, it speaks of a force, a force that influences change or activity. And it's a powerful force. Uh, the word from which we derive dynamic is the same word from which we derive the word dynamite. And the joy of the Lord Jesus was a powerful dynamic, as we'll see from our text this morning. And uh, there are three things that we want to consider, beginning with the, the future fullness of Jesus' joy. Our text says that there was a joy that was set before him. Now, we know that Jesus rejoiced during his time on earth. In, in the Gospel of Luke, particularly, we uh, read that Jesus rejoiced in spirit. And then he prayed and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, for so it seemed good in your sight. He rejoiced in God's sovereign grace uh, to the poor, to the lowly. And that was in the midst of his suffering. That joy was in the midst of his humiliation. But there was an unmixed and there was a pure and an everlasting joy to come. And this future joy served as a tremendous motivation, a tremendous power during his life, during his suffer, suffering. And we have to ask the question then, well, how, how did that work? 
And what was that joy that so motivated him, so compelled him and upheld him in his suffering work? Well, there are a number of things that uh, the scripture teaches us on this, uh, on this point. Uh, first of all, there was the joy of his father's presence, which he anticipated in such a way that uh, he, even in all his sinless perfection, did not experience and know on earth in the state of his humiliation. He told his disciples in John chapter 14, I said to you, I'm going to my father. If you loved me, you would rejoice. They would rejoice in, in what it meant for the Lord Jesus Christ to go to heaven. We must remember uh, that Jesus rejoiced in the anticipation of his Father's presence, even as that is expressed in this messianic psalm that is so often quoted in the New Testament in connection with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 16, where we have lines like this, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. An inheritance is something that one might look forward to. And the Lord Jesus Christ knew God to be his inheritance. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope as he anticipates going to the grave. It's in the expectation of joy to come. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have to remember, brothers and sisters, that our Lord Jesus Christ, as a true man, he also lived by faith in that unspeakable bliss that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of men. As a true man, Jesus had never been to heaven before. I know we're confronted with the mysteries of his uh, divine and human nature united in one person, but we must not undermine or deny the significance of either the human or the divine nature of Christ. And he lived by faith as a true man in the assurance of that eternal blessedness that he would possess in the presence of his heavenly Father. And we also remember that uh, he himself was subject to the, the drags and the hindrances to devotion and service that mark life in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus partook of sinful flesh. But he entered a state of humiliation in our humanity that in many respects was bruised and broken by the fall. Not in terms of his moral and spiritual alienation from God, but in terms of the effects of sin upon the body in a cursed world. And Jesus knew what it was like to experience the weariness of body and the, the dullness of mind that can attend exhausting labor. He would enter the joy of the resurrection of the body, a glorified body. His reward for his faithful, obedient, suffering work. He anticipated the joy of his father's presence in a resurrected body and being delivered from all the effects of the fall as he experienced them without sin. 
He anticipated the joy of saving sinners. In Isaiah chapter uh, 53, we read those words, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This suffering servant would see the fruit, the result of his labor, and he would be satisfied. He knew that the knowledge of himself and what he would do would lead to the justification of many. And he rejoiced in that. He would be satisfied in the accomplishment of his love for the glory of God. Even in Luke chapter uh, 12 that I, or 10 that I had just cited before, Jesus rejoiced in spirit at the thought of the revelation of God's saving grace through him to babes, those who are helpless, unable to save themselves. And in the previous verse, Jesus told his disciples to rejoice that their names were written in heaven. In a way, Jesus shared the same joy that he commanded them to possess. He rejoiced in the knowledge that their names were written in heaven. He rejoiced at the thought of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. We're told in Luke chapter 15 that there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. The same chapter says that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God in one sinner who repents. You notice that it doesn't say uh, there is joy among the angels. It's not referring to the angels' joy. It's referring to the joy of God. The joy of the triune God in the salvation of sinners. The joy that was reflected in the Father who welcomed the prodigal son with feasting. Oh yes, Jesus anticipated that joy of declaring God's name in the midst of the assembly. He anticipated the joy of being present with the gathering of God's people down through the generations, communing with them, feeding them, loving them, caring for them as a shepherd for his sheep as a result of his suffering, dying work on their behalf. He rejoiced in his coming exaltation. Isaiah 53 again says that uh, he will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ refers to the glorification of his manhood, the exaltation of the God-man, where this person, true God and true man, is invested with such manifest glory that the divine glory shines out from one who himself is true man. And we think of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ also as true God who laid aside that manifest glory when he took upon himself the form of a servant and made himself of no reputation and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
It's this divine person, the God-man, who would enter into the darkness of Golgotha and who would emerge in the light of God's favor, the resurrection morning, and who would resume that glory which he had with the Father before the world was. That's what he, that's what he prayed in his high priestly prayer as he made his way to Gethsemane. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The manifest glory of the Son of God is resumed at his exaltation. These are some aspects of the joy that was set before him and a joy that sustained him that enabled him to endure the cross and despise the shame. For the joy set before him, our text says, he endured the cross. Without hope, there's nothing to sustain the soul. Jesus suffered hellish agonies upon the cross. He suffered the experience of the wrath and judgment of God against sin. But Jesus did not suffer the hopelessness of the damned in hell with never a prospect of deliverance, without the least glimmer of hope of ever emerging from the judgment and wrath of God. If that were the case, he could not have endured the cross. He knew that he would suffer and die and he knew that he would rise again. You look at those instances in which Jesus told his disciples of the suffering that awaited him. He's very specific. He spells out the details of betrayal and crucifixion and scourging. But invariably, he includes the certainty of rising again on the third day. He went to the cross knowing this. He went to the cross singing a hymn. That's what we're told in the Gospels. After the institution of the Passover, or the institution of the Lord's Supper at the Passover meal, it says they sang a hymn. Now, we don't know what what psalm that was. There are a number of psalms that likely would have been included in the celebration of the Passover. It might have been a plaintive psalm of suffering, but it was a psalm of faith. It was a psalm of expectation of God's help and deliverance. And Jesus joined with his disciples singing on the way to the cross because there was a joy set before him. While on the cross, he expected to be in paradise later that day and told the thief, the repentant thief, this day you shall be with me in paradise. He committed his spirit to the Father before he breathed his last and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. My flesh shall rest in hope, was a scripture that our Lord Jesus fed upon and believed and lived upon and died with. And this kept him from the despair of hell. It kept him on the cross. He could have come down, but saving sinners was worth more to him 
He could have called legions of angels, but he valued his father's favor more than deliverance from suffering. He could have displayed his power, but he stayed upon the cross on the path of obedience and suffering for the glory of his father. He endured the cross. In fact, we're told, secondly, that he judged the shame of the cross small in comparison to this joy that awaited him. He endured the cross, we're told, despising the shame. Despising it. The word despise uh, means uh, to make something of no account, to regard it as nothing. To regard the shame of hanging naked as nothing. To regard the shame of his kingship, his prophetic office ridiculed and mocked by the mob. To regard the ridicule of his faith as something of no account. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he delights him. Is there an exaggeration in our text? He despised the shame, counting it as nothing. Well, you notice that this language is not said about the cross. It doesn't say he despised the cross. It says he endured the cross. Because the curse of God is altogether in a different category than the contempt of men. It's the knowledge of God's favor and hope in him that enables people to endure the contempt of men in a way to say, it doesn't really matter what people think of me. As long as I do what God commands me to do, the opinion of others can't crush and destroy me. In comparison to what God thinks, it's nothing. Now that doesn't mean that this shame was small, that it was no big deal. No, it was outrageous treatment that was heaped upon him. It was excruciatingly painful for him to suffer it. Heartbreaking. But in comparison, in comparison to the joy that was set before him, our text depicts it as if our Lord said, it's nothing, not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. What a powerful thing his joy was. How important for him. How important for us. And that leads us finally to consider the moving, uh, heartening or stirring model of Jesus' joy. Our text also describes our Lord as the author and finisher of our faith. As some translations render it, he was the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the, the pioneer of our faith. The one who accomplishes our salvation and brings it to completion. And that, that makes clear that Jesus is far more than our example. We're not saved by doing what Jesus would do. We're saved because of what Jesus did for us, something that we could never do. His suffering was unmatched, unmatchable. Its purpose and its accomplishment is in a category all its own. And that also means that his joy uh, had unique features to it. His joy involved the joy of actually saving people by his life and death. 
And yet, we don't want to miss or downplay the fact that he is described here in this context also as an encouraging model. The saints are commanded to look to Jesus, to look to him, to follow him. In other words, this passage in effect is saying, is saying, let joy be the powerful dynamic in your life also. And let the same kinds of reasons for Jesus' joy motivate you. Let it be God-centered. Let it be centered upon doing God's will, pleasing your Father. Recognize the inseparable connection between joy and a sincere endeavor to keep our Lord's commandments, right? Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 15. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Well, what things? Well, the previous verse says, uh, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And then verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Just as, well, that's not a matter of uh, quantity or degree or fullness or perfection, but there's a comparison, the obedience of love and consecration to our Heavenly Father. And it's in this pathway of obedience that the reality of God's love becomes an an experiential thing that ministers to our joy and that strengthens us in the path of serving God. Let joy be that God-centered dynamic in your life. And that connection, let it be unselfish. Let me ask you a question. Do you know any uh, Christians uh, that really abound in service to others? And yet you might say that uh, they're rather joyless people. I challenge you to find joyless people who do abound in serving others. You know, for some, the best prescription for a lack of joy may be a a call to focus upon others and quit thinking so much about ourselves and ask how might we share the gifts that God has given us. Well, they don't have to be public gifts. There is a joy in a faithful mom who is exhausted at the end of the day and who can lay her head down on a pillow knowing that she has spent her energy uh, caring, at, looking after her children, caring for these little ones, doing household tasks as unto the Lord. And with all her imperfections and sins, she is at peace with God. And there is a quiet joy in her calling. Whatever our calling might be, there is a close correlation between joy and serving. That's patterned after the joy of our Lord Jesus. And remember that future joy is what drives perseverance. It's, it's joy in, or it's, it's a joy that will be realized in the future that sustains Christians during suffering, that sustains the saints under persecution. In the, in the previous chapter or chapter 10, we, we read, uh, that you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Joyfully accepted. The plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. It's that, it's that outlook on the reality of heaven that enabled these Christians to suffer the, 
the loss of their stuff unjustly stolen from them by others because they were Christians. We read in verse uh, 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 33 of chapter, uh, or verse 35, of those who were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Deny the Lord Jesus and we'll make it stop. No! They refuse deliverance from agony under torture. Why? There was a power of faith by which they looked for a better resurrection than simply getting off a torture table for a while. There's a power of joy. Now, obviously, that description of joy is not a kind of exuberant singing, happiness. No, it's a sustaining power of faith. You look at the whole account of those heroes of faith, and one thing that marked their lives and they're willing to endure hardship was that they believed in God's promises. They haven't, they hadn't yet received the things promised, but they believed in them. They saw them afar off. And that governed their lives in action. Compared, in comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ, though at, at certain points it's incomparable because Christians never suffer the wrath and judgment of God. They may suffer his correction and his discipline. We'll consider that more tonight. But they don't suffer his wrath and judgment. Jesus did. And yet he was sustained by joy. And his suffering was so far greater than ours that if he could be sustained by joy, well, we might say in comparison, our suffering is rather inconsiderable. And so our joy ought to be sufficient to motivate us, to stir us, to persevere in the face of hardships and and difficulty. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is teaching us. To so look unto Jesus, to know that, as Paul says, our light affliction. I mean, here's a, here's a man, you can read the litany of, of, of things that he endured. Whippings and scourging, starvation, shipwreck, being cold, being hungry. And he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Let that be a motivation for us. And in this light, let us remember our Lord's death until he comes again. Amen.